Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, June 9th. I'm your host, Mike McGarry. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I hate to be and I told you so, but I told you so. There were actually a couple of things that came to pass this week or that were in the news that I've been talking about for a while. So today I'm going to gloat a little bit about being right. But uh, first, I just want to touch on the price movement in gold over the past week. Uh, Definitely another yo-yo week. We saw a big drop in the price on Wednesday with a lot of dollar strength, increasing bond yields. I think that was driven a bit by the Bank of Canada's decision to unpause its rate hiking. The Canadian Central Bank bumped rates up 25 basis points to 4.75. That was from 4.5. And that marks a 22-year high in Canadian interest rates. Now, this was after a four-month pause in hiking. Why? Well, persistent price inflation. While price inflation in Canada has eased from a peak of over 8% a year ago, it actually ticked up in April from 4.3% to 4.4%. So, like here in the U.S., Canada is still struggling with rising prices despite having pushed interest rates to what is now a 22-year high. Now, many people took this as a signal that rate hiking will have to continue globally because inflation is far from defeated. Uh, And just like in Canada, a lot of people figured, well, other central banks, including the Fed, may have to follow suit on these rate hikes. After all, price inflation is nowhere near the 2% target here in the good old USA either, right? And as you know, we live in this upside-down world where high inflation is bad for gold. Or really, it's more accurate to say that the perception that the central banks are going to keep fighting inflation is bad for gold because it raises interest rates. People are kind of just ignoring the actual inflation and are totally fixated on what the central banks are doing. I think maybe they might want to look at what price inflation is actually doing because it indicates how much actual inflation, and by that I mean money, is sloshing around out there in the economy. After all, central banks globally pumped trillions of dollars of liquidity into the uh, into the global economy through the pandemic. And of course, uh, they've been pumping liquidity into the economy since the 2008 financial crisis. So all of that inflation is sloshing around out there, still keeping that price inflation pressure going. So even though we've seen some relief from things like the supply chain disruptions and you know, all of the things that the mainstream likes to focus on with inflation, the actual root cause is still out there, despite the tightening. And I've talked about this before. Central banks have uh, have, have raised interest rates, and, and the Fed has actually shrunk its balance sheet to a small degree. But that's nowhere near enough to absorb the trillions of dollars that they pumped out there. But it's certainly enough to start crashing the bubble economy. So, you know, here we are. So anyway, we got the big leg down in gold on Wednesday, driven by, as I mentioned, dollar strength. Uh, And the price actually fell below 1942 an ounce 
for a bit on Wednesday. But then we got a healthy rally yesterday and recovered almost all of those losses by close. Now, we've had a couple of dollars sell off this morning as I was prepping the podcast, but uh, gold did close on Thursday back over 16 or back over 1960 an ounce, which kind of seems to be the support level right now. The gold buying on Thursday and, and also silver. Um, had a uh, had a nice rally, and it was over $25 an ounce uh, at one point on Thursday. So this was su- all sparked by a surprisingly high number of first-time unemployment claims. Initial jobless claims uh, spiked from 233,000 to 261,000, and that was the highest level of first-time jobless claims since October 2021. Now, I'm pretty skeptical of all of these job numbers, especially the monthly reports we're getting when they keep telling us that the economy is creating hundreds of thousands of jobs every month. I think they are using assumptions in their calculations that are overstating the number of jobs created. I know, shocking, Mike is skeptical of government numbers. I make no apologies. Um, But... I also think a lot of these jobs that are actually being created are people taking on second and third jobs trying to make ends meet. Um, And that's actually detectable in the data, um, as we've talked about in some of our uh, deeper dives into those numbers. Regardless, I'm slightly less skeptical of the unemployment claims. I mean, that's basically raw numbers of people who are going into the office and filing for unemployment. Now, uh, there are some issues of fraud um, that we could talk about. But by and large, I think when you start seeing unemployment claims go up, I think that's probably indicative of what's going on out there in the labor market, more so than the monthly BLS numbers that keep getting revised and and they just don't make sense. So if the unemployment claims that we're seeing is the beginning of a trend, it could signal that the recession uh, that we've been talking about is right on top of us. And that's how the markets seem to have taken it. Uh, Canada notwithstanding, the unemployment data made people a little more optimistic that the Fed will skip a rate hike at its meeting uh, next week. And then we saw dollar weakness, uh, bond yields fell, and that's because people think rates will start falling as the Fed eases off the gas pedal. Now, I don't know what the Fed's going to do next week. The market consensus seems to be kind of solidifying around uh, a pause with no rate hike. But what's more important is what it does when this recession actually hit, uh, when it when it actually hits. Because as I've been saying, it's not going to be a short shallow downturn. And that's when the Fed is going to really have to reverse course. It's it's going to have to step in and save an economy that is collapsing. And as I've talked about before, uh, the modus operandi for the Fed is to step in when there's a recession. Um, So I I don't see any reason to think that they're going to suddenly have spines and not do it this time. Um, You know, That's probably when you're going to want to have some gold and silver, because if I'm right, and I think I am, price inflation is really going to surge. Now, speaking of a recession, the World Bank this week projected a big slowdown in global economic growth. In fact, it thinks growth will slow to the lowest level since the 2008 financial crisis. Now, in other words, the way I'm reading this, the World Bank is predicting the beginning 
of Great Recession 2.0, right? Now, the recession that followed the financial crisis wasn't short or shallow. And so I think it's nuts that given the current interest rate environment and all of the debt in the economy, people still think this recession is going to be tame. But that seems to be the thinking. Even this kind of gloomy World Bank projection was couched in kind of a it-won't-be-that-bad tone. In fact, the report projected that U.S. growth will remain positive during this time. So think about that. They're saying the global economy is going to see growth slow to levels last seen during the financial crisis. In other words, at the beginning of the Great Recession. But the U.S. isn't actually going to have a recession. So we're going to have this slow economic growth, but no recession. Something doesn't add up here. I wrote an article this week over at shiftgold.com news about the wave of defaults that's uh, coming down the pike based on a report by strategists over at Deutsche Bank. Now, they say that corporate defaults will become, quote, more normal as we enter into a default cycle. Um, And this, of course, is thanks to higher interest rates and a growing number of over-leveraged companies. Quote, our cycle indicators signal a default wave is imminent. The tightest Fed and ECB European Central Bank policy in 15 years is colliding with high leverage, in other words, a lot of debt, built upon stretched margins. And tactically, our U.S. credit cycle gauge is predicting its highest non-pandemic warning signal to investors since before the great financial crisis. So the Deutsche Bank study projects defaults for U.S. high-yield Debt will peak at around 9% in late 2024. So, for comparison, the high yield default rate was a mere 0.5% in 2021 and 1.3% in 2022. So, a significant increase in the default rate. But again, don't worry, everything is fine. Okay, now for a little bit of I told you so. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the real problem would start after the debt ceiling deal got done. Remember that? Go back, listen to not last week's episode, but the episode before. I talked about this in depth. Well, here we are. And by the way, I've already said this on the show, but I was right about the debt ceiling fight from the beginning back in January. I said they would ultimately raise the debt ceiling And they did. I mean, technically, they just got rid of it for two years. Um, But that played out exactly how I expected. A lot of drama um, and not much real change. So, get this. On the first working day after the so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act went into effect, the national debt surged by $359 billion. You heard that right. In one day, the national debt went up by $359 billion. And then the next day, it went up another $30.3 billion. That's a shitload of fiscal responsibility, eh? So the national debt now stands at $31.856 trillion. Uh, It's probably a little higher than that as I record uh, when I 
did the show prep, they had data through June 6th. Uh, so... Anyway, we're going to eclipse $32 trillion soon, so I'll be writing that article. I would guess that's probably going to happen within the next week or two. The uh, Treasury Department has a website where you can actually see the debt to the penny. So every day it updates. It's a couple of days behind, but you can see how the debt is growing. I'll link to it in the show notes page. You can check that out for yourself. So anyway, we had this big surge in the debt in just one day, and Quite frankly, you can expect more eye-popping single-day national debt increases in the days ahead. And this is exactly what I said would happen last week. You know, here's the thing. When it's all said and done, the debt ceiling deal got Uncle Sam a shiny new credit card with no borrowing limit, and it got us some fake spending cuts. So the mentality now seems to be that everybody can just go back to business as usual because the problem is solved. And of course, the business as usual is borrowing and spending money. But the problem isn't solved. So again, I talked about this in depth a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth reiterating some of the points that I made. The deal exacerbated the problem. And we saw that on the very first day the deal was in place. You know, the fundamental issue wasn't that the U.S. government couldn't borrow enough money. The fundamental problem was, and still is, that the U.S. government spends too much money. And despite the pretend spending cuts Republicans brag about, the deal didn't address the problem. Even with this new plan in place, with the so-called spending cuts um, and the... uh, you know, title of being fiscally responsible, spending will go up. So that means the big budget deficits that we're seeing right now will continue and the national debt will continue to mount. After months up against the borrowing limit, the balance in the federal government's checking account, which is called the Treasury General Account, TGA for short, and that's over at the New York Federal Reserve Bank, it got dangerously low. Uh, They were running out of cash. At the end of last week, the balance was a mere $23 billion. That was down from nearly $1 trillion at its peak um, once they build, uh, built it back up after drawing it down you know, during the last stupid debt ceiling fight. So that balance has to be replenished now with new borrowing. So that's on top of the borrowing that's going to be necessary to, main the ma- to maintain the massive monthly deficits. Say that three times fast. Maintain massive monthly deficits. Um, so anyway, they're back to borrowing, as evidenced by the big jump in the national debt that we saw Um in one single day. And of course, we can also see it if we look at the outstanding treasuries, marketable treasury securities outstanding, and that's bonds that can actually be traded on the open bond market. There's two types of treasuries. There's kind of these internal treasuries that aren't out in the open market, and those are the ones that like the Social Security Administration holds. Um, But we have the marketable securities um, that are out there in the market. That spiked by 333 billion dollars on June 5th. So most of that big increase in the national debt was from issuing uh, these marketable treasuries. Um, That means in the first day after the debt ceiling deal, the U.S. Treasury dumped $330 billion worth of bonds on the market. Now, that's a lot 
but it's just the beginning. Uh, I mentioned this uh, in a couple of shows. Goldman Sachs projects that the U.S. Treasury is going to have to sell as much as $700 billion in Treasury bills within the next six to eight weeks just to replenish those cash reserves that were spent down while the government was up against the borrowing limit. So, what happens when the supply of something goes up without a corresponding increase in demand? The price drops, right? Supply and demand economics 101. So we can expect to see a lot of headwinds in the bond market over the next month or so as the Treasury tries to sell all of these bonds. And since bond yields are inversely related to bond prices, we're going to see interest rates increase in all likelihood. There's certainly going to be upper pressure. And of course, anytime you talk about these kind of uh, market movements, you have to understand that we're saying all other things being equal. So all other things being equal, we're going to see a lot of price pressure on the bond market and a lot of upward pressure on interest rates. A Bank of America note projects that the anticipated post-debt ceiling bond sale will basically have the impact on the financial system equivalent to another 25 basis point Federal Reserve rate hike. So, you know, that may be the real reason the Fed doesn't want to hike again in June. It knows the Treasury is basically doing the uh, rate hike job for them. Now, as Wolf Street noted, this is going to have spillover effect into the broader bond market. Quote, liquidity will be drained from the markets because the primary dealers and investors will buy all those treasury securities that are being issued instead of other stuff, and they will sell other stuff to fund their purchases of treasury securities. And this flow of liquidity alters the buying and selling pressures. So you see how all of this intervention ripples through the financial markets and the broader economy. And that's why so much of this economic control is so problematic, because nobody knows exactly what all of those trickle-down effects are going to be, but they're definitely going to be there. So a liquidity drain coupled with rising interest rates, uh, whether it's from just the natural Uh, pressures in the markets, or if it's from the Fed, it's bad news for anybody in debt. And pretty much everybody's in debt right now, from consumers uh, who have run up household debt to a record level, over $17 trillion now. Corporations are over-leveraged. We just talked uh, about the increase in defaults, and the federal government, of course. So exactly how all of this will impact the economy in the long term remains to be seen, but it's pretty obvious that this is an unsustainable trajectory. It's going to put even more strain on the financial system. Rising interest rates have already kicked off a financial crisis, which, despite what they tell you, is still ongoing. There's still a lot of banks that are in shaky conditions. Uh, They papered over that problem with the bailout. Uh, But it's only a matter of time before something else in the economy or in the financial system breaks. And I think more significantly, looking further down the road at some point, this unlimited borrowing is going to force the Federal Reserve to monetize some of this debt. And that means a return to quantitative easing. Even if it doesn't happen immediately, QE is in the future. I'm certain of that because I don't see any other way for the market to absorb 
all of the debt that the Treasury is going to have to issue to support spending that's mostly going to go onto a credit card that has no limits. I mean, we're seeing a drop in federal tax receipts right now. Federal revenue is going down. The CBO is projected it's going to continue to go down. It's going to go way down if indeed there's a recession. So there's not going to be as much coming money coming in. And yet the federal government is going to continue to spend at about a $500 billion a month clip. That's half a trillion dollars every single month that the government is spending. This debt ceiling deal didn't touch much of that spending at all. So that's going to continue. We're already seeing these massive deficits. We're already close to a trillion dollars uh, as of last month in terms of just this fiscal year deficit. So in order to prop up the bond market, to keep prices higher than they otherwise would be, and conversely, keep interest rates lower, which is imperative when you're borrowing a bunch of money, the Fed's ultimately going to have to put its big fat thumb on the bond market. It's going to have to buy bonds, put them on its balance sheet in order to boost that demand and keep the market solvent. And it's going to buy those treasuries with money created out of thin air. That's inflation. The table is set for stagflation. That's why I can't imagine why anybody would be selling gold or silver at this point, unless they're just trying to play the short-term ups and downs in the markets. Or they've totally bought into the mainstream mantra of everything's fine, everything's contained, everything's under control. Because, you know, that's always the mainstream mantra. Everything's going to be okay. So, probably a little bit of both of those. So, the fact that there would be a big jump in the national debt the moment the fake debt ceiling fight was over, I called that. It isn't the only thing it appears I was right about. Back on March 29th, I wrote about how the commercial real estate market may well be the next thing to break in this bubble economy. Well, this week, your Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, was running around warning about problems in you guessed it, the commercial real estate market. Yellen was on CNBC Squawk Box, and the host asked if she was worried about the commercial real estate market. She said, quote, well, I do think that there will be issues with respect to commercial real estate. Certainly, the demand for office space, since we've seen such a big change in attitudes and behaviors toward remote work has changed, and especially in an environment of higher interest rates. She also said that it could create some more stress on the banks that are already having some struggles because of rising interest rates, and that's decimated their reserves. She said, quote, I think banks are broadly preparing for some restructuring and difficulties going ahead, Yellen said. But then she went on to insist that the overall level of liquidity at banks looks strong and that stress tests of the largest banks show they have adequate capital to withstand fallout from the commercial property market. Now, funny thing, Signature Bank and Silicon Valley banks were also strong until they weren't. Nobody in any kind of leadership position saw those banks going under, right? They were even stress tested not too long ago, like last fall, before they went under and everything was fine. So you have to wonder, what else are they missing? Now, you know, I'm kind of playing up the I told you so thing, but honestly, I'm not saying anything that isn't obvious. 
In fact, I get most of my data from mainstream sources. So everybody sees the data, right? So, you know, you, you go back to March, they were talking about issues in the commercial real estate market. The thing is, you, you see these things pop up. And then nobody really talks about it anymore. You know, it's like, oh, we might have some problems in the commercial real estate market. And then they just go on. You know, like, like maybe you ought to follow that once you bring it up. Uh, you know, it's the same thing with the uh, big spike in borrowing after the debt ceiling. I mean, obviously that was going to happen. People in the mainstream said it was going to happen. But nobody seems to think it's a problem. You see, here's the thing. I think most people look at the data through a faulty economic framework. They can see problems in the commercial real estate market. I mean, who couldn't? Doesn't take a PhD in economics to understand people, depending on low interest rate loans, are going to struggle in, in, high, uh, in a high interest rate environment. But everybody seems to miss what's actually causing the problem. They don't understand the root causes. Or if they do understand, and they might, they pretend like they don't, or they just ignore it. You know, they, they just kind of act like interest rates magically rose. And there is no thought or discussion about what created the ability for these people to lever up and buy a bunch of commercial real estate to begin with. You know, they'll talk about things like COVID changing the way people work. That's That was Yellen's spiel. Um, and, and, you know, that's killing the demand for office space. And sure, that's part of it. But that didn't blow up the commercial real estate bubble to begin with. And it is a bubble, just like the housing bubble in 2005 and 2006. You know, everybody talks about greed and you know, lack of regulations or, you know, maybe there was some government policy that uh, incentivized buying real estate. You know, that's kind of the two sides of the coin. You've got the, the Democrats will blame deregulation and the Republicans will blame some stupid government program. Um and both of those kind of miss the real issue. People wouldn't have been able to act on greed or skirt regulations or take advantage of government policies if the Fed hadn't kept interest rates artificially lower than they otherwise would have been. You know, they do these easy money policies to stimulate the economy, right? That's the point. But the central planners can't control it. That's the thing they, they'll never admit. You always end up with malinvestments and bubbles. That's just the nature of the beast, and bubbles always pop. So there is clearly a bubble in the commercial real estate market. Everybody can see it. I saw it months ago. Yellen sees it, but most people don't understand it, or they misunderstand it. And I think that's why the mainstream mostly understates problems. You know, inflation is transitory. Subprime is contained. The recession will be short and shallow. Banks can withstand fallout from the commercial property market. Uh, you know, the banking sector is strong and robust. They always say those kinds of things because they're fixated on the symptoms and they don't understand the problem. They think that the symptoms will just go away with, you know, a little bit of time or maybe a tweak of a policy here or there. And, you know, and of course, they always overestimate their ability to fix things. And it's just not true. I mean, think about it. Almost everything that the mainstream, particularly the Fed people, the government people, almost everything they say turns out to be wildly wrong to our detriment. So... 
you know, I'm not inclined to believe the mainstream spin on stuff because I'm coming from an Austrian economics perspective that does a really good job of explaining how the business cycle works and how all of this monetary policy and easy money creates malinvestments in bubbles. It's been well demonstrated. When you look at the data, when you look at what's going on in the world through that lens, it changes your perspective drastically. So, you know, if you're like me and not inclined to believe the mainstream spin on this stuff, I think it might be a good time to think about investing in gold and silver. After all, the old saying is buy low, sell high. And I think gold is awful low. I mean, we've seen this this kind of drop uh, in, in the last month or so. So maybe you should take advantage of that. Maybe you've been thinking about adding precious metals to your investment portfolio or upping your positions. Highly recommend talking to a Shift Gold Precious Metals specialist. You can do that by calling 1-888-GOLD-160 or emailing info at shiftgold.com. Or you can simply go to the Shift Gold website, shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can talk to a Precious Metals specialist right there online in chat. Do it today. It's a great time to look into that. So... I've been fighting, uh, getting over strep. I'm feeling better, but it's still a little wonky. So, I don't know. I feel like this podcast might have been a little wonky. So, if it was, I apologize. But it is a cold wrap for this week. And, of course, you can get more details on all of these stories and more and keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap, Apple Podcasts, Ship Gold YouTube channel, Stitcher, Google, uh, links to all that stuff on the show notes page, along with links to our social media channels. Really appreciate you guys listening to the show. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.